This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in Canadian women. When younger women who are still in their reproductive years are diagnosed with breast cancer, many haven't started or completed their families. This is a huge issue. And although there are a variety of fertility options available, many women aren't aware of them or aren't referred to fertility preservation counseling. And as a result, they never get to explore this option. I'm Dr. Heather Murray, Associate Editor for CMAJ. I'm also an emergency physician in Kingston, Ontario, and a professor of emergency medicine at Queen's University. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Ellen Warner and Dr. Karen Glass. They've co-authored a review article which is published in CMAJ and have joined me to discuss the issues that affect women with cancers and their fertility. I've reached them in Toronto. Hello, Ellen and Karen. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Hi, Heather. Thanks for inviting us. Hi, Heather. I'm really glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you both. I wonder if we can start by having you each tell me a bit about who you are. Maybe we can start with you, Ellen. Sure. I'm a medical oncologist at the Odette Cancer Center in Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto, and I'm also a mother of four children. For the last 25 years, my practice, teaching, research has been entirely focused on breast cancer. My work spans the entire gamut from breast cancer risk um, assessment, risk reduction, screening, helping find more effective and less toxic treatments, and finally to the so-called survivorship issues, which means improving the health and quality of life of women who've completed active treatment for their breast cancer. Now I'd like to hear a little bit about Karen and your background. I'm Karen Glass and I'm the Director of Fertility Preservation at Create Fertility Centre in Toronto. And like Ellen, I'm also associated with Sunnybrook Hospital. Um, for 18 years, I have been at CREATE, and I developed and started one of Canada's largest, biggest fertility preservation programs. And so I see people from literally all over Canada who have been diagnosed with cancer and are concerned about being able to have a baby one day in the future. Well, the two of you together have created a powerful article and a, and a lot of interesting information for us. The review article applies to a specific group of women, and maybe you can explain the particular situation they're in and the challenges they're facing. Certainly. We're discussing women who are diagnosed with breast cancer in their very early 40s or younger, and that's about 10% of all breast cancer patients. To be honest, in the first half of my career as an oncologist, I never gave these women any thought at all. I simply saw them as an easy group to treat because they rarely had any comorbidities, unlike most of the older women in my practice. But about 15 years ago, I attended a half-day symposium about young women with breast cancer that really opened my eyes to the very special needs and challenges of this population. And that symposium spearheaded my creating a special program for these women at Sunnybrook called PINK, spelled with a Y. I'll just focus on the challenges these women face that are relevant to this article. So first, 
Breast cancers are usually diagnosed at a much more advanced stage in younger women than in older women. And that's mainly because we don't routinely offer breast screening to younger women. And second, the tumors of young women at any stage are on average more biologically aggressive. So if you put these two facts together, it means that this population generally needs much more extensive treatment in order to cure their cancer. And that almost always includes ovarian damaging chemotherapy. And for the two thirds or three quarters of women who have hormone sensitive or what you might call ER positive tumors, that includes up to 10 years of endocrine therapy during which time pregnancy is contraindicated unless that therapy is interrupted. Meanwhile, in our society, women are starting their childbearing very later and later in life. At the time of their breast cancer diagnosis, about half these young women haven't completed their families, and many haven't even started them. And without fertility preservation before treatment, many of these women will be infertile or have markedly reduced fertility. So what I've witnessed over and over again in my practice is women who always dreamt of being mothers, and then they're struggling unsuccessfully to get pregnant sometime after completing their breast cancer treatment. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. So in a nutshell, the challenge is to give these young women the most effective treatment for their breast cancer, while still enabling those who have not yet completed their families to have children in the future. So in the process of creating our PINK program, I discovered that our young patients were rarely getting referred for fertility preservation, and fixing that became a priority. I then learned there was a fertility specialist downtown called Dr. Karen Glass, who had a special interest in fertility preservation for cancer patients. So Ellen, you mentioned that there was a symposium that opened your eyes and then that you realized women weren't being referred to the opportunities for fertility preservation. What was the motivation to write this article now? So Dr. Glass and I are co-investigators on a $6 million Canada-wide study of young women with breast cancer called RUBY. And RUBY stands for Reducing the Burden of Breast Cancer in Young Women. So far, since that study began in 2015, 1,200 women diagnosed with breast cancer at age 40 or younger have been recruited to it. Um, extensive clinical information is being collected through patient questionnaires and hospital charts, along with blood from the patients and tumor samples. And the main goals of this RUBY study are to learn more about why otherwise healthy young women develop breast cancer and what treatments give these young women the best possible outcomes. But in the meantime, there are a number of RUBY sub-studies being conducted. And one of these that Dr. Glass and I are running is an intervention to encourage breast surgeons to offer a fertility preservation consultation to their young breast cancer patients as soon as possible after the breast cancer diagnosis. And this early referral to a fertility clinic has been recommended by the American Society of Clinical Oncology ever since 2006. But research in Canada and elsewhere has shown that a high percentage of these young women are never referred, hence the need for our intervention. So what we discovered during this study, as well as anecdotally in our own practices, was that on several occasions, a surgeon would very appropriately send a newly diagnosed young breast cancer patient to a fertility clinic for consultation, and then one of her other healthcare providers, such as her family doctor, or even her medical oncologist, believe it or not, would then advise her not to have fertility preservation. And they would tell her things like, it's not safe, especially if she has hormone-sensitive disease, or that fertility preservation will delay her chemo for too long, or that she should just focus on curing her cancer and worry about having babies later, when of course it's too late often. 
So we decided to write an up-to-date review article that would reach as wide an audience of Canadian healthcare providers as possible, and not only reassure them that fertility preservation was safe, but also explain why it is such an extremely important part of the management of young women with breast cancer. So you were frustrated when an intervention you designed to encourage surgeons to refer patients was unexpectedly derailed by other healthcare practitioners who had misinformation about the safety of fertility preservation therapies that were being offered to these patients? Exactly. Oh, well, that's, that's great. So as an emergency physician, I'm a little bit in the dark here, and I'm hoping you can explain to me exactly how breast cancer treatment affects ovarian function. So I'm going to start um, just saying that the first hint I get as a medical oncologist, the chemotherapy is doing something nasty to ovaries, is that almost all my patients who were getting regular periods before I started their chemotherapy find that their periods become either irregular or stop completely during the chemotherapy. And their period usually comes back, not always, um, over the next few months. Uh, it'll generally come back if they're under age 40 and not getting hormonal therapy, but not necessarily. And even if their periods do come back, they're not necessarily fertile. And I'll let Dr. Glass explain why. Classically, in studies done of post-chemotherapy patients, um, the question that was asked is, are you getting your period? And so um, oncologists, of course, are not experts in fertility, and they would say, oh, the patients were getting their period, so therefore they must be fertile. Where obviously just having a period doesn't mean you can have a baby. And so what we do in the fertility world is we use markers of fertility, such as antral follicle count and AMH, and we discuss that a little bit in the paper. And we use those markers to quantify the harm of chemotherapy. And so what we can see when we do those studies and we um, look at the before and the after is that there's many women who are still having a period, so ovulating, yet when they try to become pregnant, they have very, very low success rates because of the damage to the egg, so that they have eggs, but they're very poor quality. And that's where it comes in to us and becomes very important for us to counsel them that just because you have a period after chemotherapy doesn't mean that you'll actually be fertile because the damage has been done and the quality and number of eggs that are remaining is actually quite low. So even if your periods resume after chemotherapy, there's no guarantee that your fertility will be at the same level that it was beforehand. And it's very probable that it has been damaged. Exactly. And, and we can quantify that. So in terms of not talking, you have an 80% chance of this and a 60% chance of that. I think it's very hard for patients to understand what those numbers mean. I think it's hard for doctors to understand what those numbers mean. And so the way we can quantify it is to say that the chemotherapies that are given for breast cancer generally will make your ovaries quote, quote, age. So it makes you like a woman who is five to 10 years older than you. And I think most people can understand that. If you're 35 at the time that you get chemotherapy, after chemotherapy, your ovaries will be similar to a woman who's 40 to 45 years old. So we know that ovaries age with chemotherapy. So what can we do to help that? What can we offer patients to help overcome that problem? Maybe Karen can answer that. So when we chat with patients, we go through options. And the most tried, tested, and true option for fertility preservation would be going through an IVF cycle. Now, IVF, the term in vitro fertilization, is a bit of a misnomer because essentially what we're doing is we're stimulating the ovaries and then we're taking the eggs out. 
patients have a choice once we've gone through that cycle, whether they actually fertilize their eggs and freeze an embryo or whether they freeze the egg as just an egg. And that decision to freeze an egg or an embryo may be based on their marital status, may be based on their ethical views, may be based on some religious views. And so we'll go through the benefits of both. Um, success rates for freezing oocytes as opposed to an embryo have really improved over the last five to 10 years. And so for women who are less than 35, the actual success rates are almost as good for freezing an oocyte alone as as opposed to fertilizing it and forming an embryo prior to transferring it in the future. So going through an IVF cycle takes approximately two weeks, somewhere between 12 to 14 days. And we're very fortunate that in Ontario and in Quebec, which is the most populated areas of Canada, um, that the governments and the health plans in those provinces will fund one cycle of freezing oocytes or eggs. Unfortunately, in the rest of Canada, it isn't yet funded. And so in the other provinces, if an oncology patient is referred, they would have to pay out of their own pocket to go through that cycle and to freeze their eggs or their embryos. Um, most of the clinics in Canada do have some sort of special charity or some sort of payment plan to help them cover those costs. And there's also a Canadian-wide charity that's called Fertile Future uh, that is available to help patients pay for those cycles. They actually also will help men who are going through cancer treatments pay for sperm freezing. So that's also a nice added benefit. So if you're under 35 and you go through this cycle and you put eggs or embryos in the freezer, thawing them out in the future when you start transferring the embryos is going to give you approximately a 50% success rate and having a baby from each embryo transfer. So if you have many, many eggs or many, many embryos in the freezer, then you'll have more chances and the cumulative pregnancy rates will go higher and higher and higher. So one of the situations that we often see that is complicated is when we see people that are approximately 40 or maybe 41 or 42, and they have lower ovarian reserve. So even going through an IVF cycle and taking those two weeks to um, do some fertility preservation, um, it's not going to be a guarantee for them because they may not get as many eggs based on their ovarian reserve. And so that becomes a little bit difficult. So when we're counseling them, we're going through the risks of success and we're going through their age and that really the number one dependent factor for success at the end is going to be age when we're talking about an IVF cycle. One of the other things that's very important is that a large percentage of the patients who are young that are diagnosed with breast cancer um, may be discovered or may already know that they're a carrier for a mutation in a gene such as BRCA1 and 2. And so when I'm chatting with them, we talk about the possibility of testing their embryos to discover if their embryos have that mutation so that they would be able in the future to transfer only embryos that don't have the genetic mutation so they don't pass that on to their children. So often Ellen hears these histories and I hear these histories where my grandmother had breast cancer, my mother had breast cancer, my aunt had breast cancer, and now I have breast cancer. And so at this point, we could stop from transmitting that gene and hopefully the children of that patient will not have breast cancer in the future because we've not passed on that mutation. 
So I want to pick up on something you said earlier, which was that it takes about two weeks to sort of do this ovarian stimulation and then harvest the eggs. Is that right? Yeah, so it takes approximately 10 to 12 days of medications for the eggs to grow. So just like in a natural cycle, if you remember the menstrual cycle from day one to day 14, the egg is growing. So also in an IVF cycle, it takes approximately 10, 11 days of the medications. And some of the medications that we give are pills. So we use letrozole because letrozole is also used for breast cancer. And it's going to keep the estrogen levels during the cycle in a lower range. So especially for a patient who's estrogen receptor positive, we don't want their estrogen levels to be going very high during those 10 days of stimulation. So we use the aromatase inhibitor, uh, and that is a wonderful drug for fertility. We also know that it helps the quality of the oocytes that we retrieve. So I always say it's the greatest thing since sliced bread because it's good for the oncologist and it's good for the uh, REI doctor as well. The other nice thing about using Femera during our stimulation for these breast cancer patients is a lower peak estrogen level at the end of the IVF cycle means that they have a lower chance of having a complication of IVF that's called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or OHSS. So these patients are usually needing to move as soon as possible to have chemotherapy. And if they had a complication of their IVF and they had to delay their chemotherapy, that wouldn't be ideal. So I'm doing everything I can in my stimulation protocol to have a good number of eggs that are good quality, but also to protect the patient's ability to move on as quickly as possible to chemotherapy. So it seems to me like the main concerns of patients who would be going through this treatment would be, first of all, the impact of the ovarian stimulation on their cancer, on their hormone-sensitive cancer. And it sounds like cures across the country are taking really careful steps to diminish that risk. The second concern that I suspect patients have is the delay to starting their chemotherapy. And if it takes sort of two weeks to get to the harvesting process. What do you think the practical delay is from the start of the referral process, a consultation, and, and getting through all these appointments and, and scheduling and so forth? What is a, a usual delay that, that patients would experience in, in taking the right turn for fertility preservation before chemo? So as Ellen mentioned already, it's crucial that the first person that diagnoses the patient with breast cancer offers them fertility preservation. So if their biopsy comes back positive, they're going to start the ball with all the referrals. So there's going to be a medical oncologist, a surgical oncologist, a radiation oncologist, and a fertility preservation specialist should be included in there. So that if I see them at the very beginning, by the time the whole workup has been done and all the testing is back that the oncology team has to do, I'll probably have their eggs out. And there's times that I've had the eggs already in the freezer before the medical oncologist has even seen the patient because we are efficient and we see them very quickly. So what I do in my personal practice is I block a half a day a week for oncology patients so that I know they're not going on my usual waiting list when they're diagnosed. So as soon as that fax comes in, my administrative assistant calls them and books them into that clinic and you know 
if we get the referral on a Thursday morning, I'm seeing them on Friday afternoon. So sometimes I've seen them less than 24 hours after the referral has arrived. So fertility preservation is considered an urgent referral and they don't wait on regular waiting lists. And so hopefully the fertility preservation side of things is not delaying their surgery and chemotherapy in any way, shape, and form. But um, Ellen, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, thanks, Karen. So I just want to add in there that in the past, it was rarely a problem if patients were going to be getting um, surgery first and then chemo, because especially if the referral was made right at the time of diagnosis, then you had lots of time. To, you'd have to wait for the surgery. Then chemotherapy wouldn't happen right away. Patients have to heal up after their surgery. So there's loads of time, not only to do one cycle of IVF, but even two if you don't get quite enough eggs with the first one. The problem today is that more and more patients are getting what we call neoadjuvant chemo. So they go straight from diagnosis to chemotherapy, and then the surgery isn't done until after the chemotherapy. And that's where people get really panicky and they say, oh my God, there's this cancer still in the breast. We're going to start giving hormones. We're going to delay giving chemo. That cancer is going to grow. We can't do fertility preservation. There's no time. But there really is because we know that these cancers don't come up suddenly. We know that most breast cancers take months or even years to grow. And you know, there's a little bit of natural delay from the time the patient first feels the mask till they get seen by the doctor, till they have their biopsy. And an extra two or three weeks delay is not gonna make any difference in their outcome and people need to understand that. So with these fast cycles now where we don't have to wait till a certain day in the cycle and um, Karen does something called crashing the corpus luteum if necessary, as soon as the patients are seen, they can almost immediately start their ovarian stimulation and the delay is really minimal and it's safe. So if we can take one thing away from this conversation, it's that remembering and referring patients for fertility preservation counseling to plan a strategy around fertility preservation is this, the absolute first thing that should be done after the call to the oncologist once we diagnose a patient. Perfect. Yep. Like a knee jerk. <laughs> knee jerk. Knee jerk. If the patient wants more children. Like that's the most important question. What was your plans for fertility? And if the patient says, I have five kids, I think I'm done, then they don't need to see me. Always ask the question, because you might think that three kids is a huge family, but maybe that patient wants five. So you always have to ask. Well, that's super helpful. Thank you. So another option that seems pretty new is ovarian tissue cryopreservation or freezing part of the ovary. Can you tell me about that? Yes, I would love to explain that to you. Ovarian tissue cryopreservation was first started mostly in the Middle East and Europe, and it is much more prevalent over there. So what it entails is doing a laparoscopic surgery with a general anesthetic and taking out either a whole ovary or a piece of an ovary. Then the part of the ovary that has the eggs or the cortex is then cut up into these small little pieces and then it is cryopreserved or frozen. So that tissue can then go in the freezer and it can stay in there as long as may be. When the patient's cured of their cancer, the ovarian tissue can be thawed, and then another laparoscopy with another general anesthetic would need to be done, and those pieces of ovarian tissue can be transplanted back into the pelvis. Um, if there's a remaining ovary, it can be sewn onto the ovary that's there, or if you've taken out all the ovaries, and then you can just sew the tissue back where the ovary would be in the pelvis, sort of like near the fallopian tube. 
it was considered experimental until just recently where a couple of societies have looked and seen that, wait a minute, we've been doing this for 15 years and we've been having some quite good success rates. We know that there's probably somewhere between 200 and 300 babies in the world that are born from ovarian tissue, uh, cryopreservation and thawing. And so the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, or ASRM, and the International Society of Fertility Preservation, ISFP, and the ESHRAE, which is the European Society, have all in the last sort of 12 months come forward and they have said, you know what, we feel that this is so well done that we're not going to call this experimental anymore. And recently there was a publication that came out where um, three or four of the very best clinics that have been doing this for 15 years, um, two from Europe and one from Israel, followed approximately um, 87 transplantations. And what they found is that 94% of the patients got their periods back from the tissue being put back in. So these were patients who were completely in menopause after their chemotherapy, not necessarily from breast cancer, it could be from other kinds of cancers and chemotherapies. And they found that 50% of those patients had at least one pregnancy, and about 42% of the patients had at least one delivery. So those are very high success rates that are sitting and approaching uh, women who are doing IVF and transferring an embryo. So you can see why all those societies are saying, like, looking at these numbers, we feel that this is no longer experimental. One of the really nice things with freezing ovarian tissue is that you're not just putting 10 or 20 eggs in the freezer, but you're putting thousands and thousands and thousands of eggs in the freezer. And so every single month, the patient will ovulate and they'll get another chance. When we do IVF, the number of chances is quite limited. One of the concerns about ovarian tissue cryopreservation, which is followed very closely in all of the research that's being done, is could there possibly be a small microscopic piece of that cancer in that ovary when you put it in the freezer? Because if so, when you put it back in, the patient's cancer would come back. And clearly this is not what we're looking to do uh, when we're doing fertility preservation. And so what we've done, or we being the royal we of the fertility preservation people and doctors, is that they've done PCR analysis and microscopic histologic analysis where they thaw one of the pieces and they look for cancer and test for it in that piece. And then it seems like that ovary is safe. And so they would then go ahead and um, put the ovarian uh, transplantation pieces back in. And so it is theoretical that you could transfer the cancer back, but as far as I'm concerned up to today, there hasn't been any actual cases where ovarian tissue that's been cryopreserved and then transferred back into a patient um, gave them metastases of their cancer. So that is great news. What would make a patient lean towards ovarian tissue cryopreservation versus uh, oocyte cryopreservation? really um, one of the main issues is availability of this treatment. So when you go to see your REI specialist and they say, this is what your choices are, in most of Canada, ovarian tissue cryopreservation is still not routinely done. So in Ontario and Quebec, IVF for fertility preservation is funded, but only in Quebec is freezing ovarian tissue funded. 
So if I say to you, you can do IVF and you don't have to pay anything um, except for medication costs, which are often supported by the drug companies to give you compassionate medication. But if you do ovarian tissue cryopreservation, you will have costs associated with it. And so I would, my understanding is that some of the clinics that are charging patients for it are charging about $1,500 to do ovarian tissue cryopreservation. Um, as well, in certain provinces, such as and my understanding is in Alberta and British Columbia, to do a laparoscopy, to take out a piece of an ovary for ovarian tissue cryopreservation is not funded. So even the laparoscopy itself would not be funded. And so in Canada, unfortunately, this has not yet been brought to a higher level where the ministries of health in each of the provinces say, hey, look, this is something that's being done everywhere else in the world. And why are we not doing this here? Let's move forward. Let's develop protocols. Let's make this part of our ministry of health billing so that this excellent option becomes also available to patients. One of the big benefits of it is that once the ovary is out, you can start your chemotherapy. So it's fast, but in Canada, as you may know, as an emergency physician and see, sometimes getting o, um, OR time is very challenging. And I need to do that um, removal of the ovary not at two in the morning because I have to have my embryologist available to prepare the tissue and do the cryopreservation immediately after the ovary comes out. So you can't just put this patient on an emergency list to have an ovarian biopsy and then the OR time becomes available at one in the morning. That's not acceptable. It has to be done during daytime hours when um, the clinics and the embryologists are available to prepare and work with the tissue. So we've talked about taking eggs out and freezing them for use after the chemotherapy is finished. And we've even talked about this newer technology of taking ovaries or pieces of ovaries out, freezing them and re-implanting them after chemotherapy is finished. But there are fertility saving options where you protect the ovary during chemotherapy with gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists or GnRH agonists. I'm hoping you can explain this to me and help me understand what doctors and patients need to know about this option. Yes, so we can add this option on to the other options as well. So you could do an IVF cycle and put a batch of eggs or embryos in the freezer. And when you're finished your IVF cycle, you could then start the GnRH agonist. You, so this could be an add-on. Um, so what it entails is having an injection of a GnRH agonist, um, such as luprolide or gazarelin. Um, those injections would normally be given intramuscular every four weeks. Uh, the cost of that injection depends on where you live, but generally is approximately $400 per month. And this injection is going to put you into a temporary menopause or shut down the ovaries. And so we feel that by shutting down the ovaries and being in the state, that there is likely less blood flow to the ovaries and therefore less chemo that is coming to the ovaries. And there's some theories on why it seems to help, but there's numerous, numerous meta-analyses and there's even one meta-analysis of the meta-analysis. <laughs> Um, there are about 11 meta-analyses published on GnRH agonist use in patients um, who are receiving chemotherapy in terms of success rate in fertility preservation. And all of the meta-analyses agree on one thing, and that these medications will postpone and delay the date of menopause. 
And so we know that even if patients don't go into menopause right after they've received chemotherapy, that they will go into menopause sooner than they would have uh, without the chemotherapy. So the average age of menopause in Canada is about 51 and a half. And when we see patients who are receiving chemotherapy, it's usually somewhere in the 40s, if not earlier. And so for sure, we all agree that the GnRH agonist will um, delay the age of menopause. But one of the questions that is very important around that is, could giving this medication, which is going to bind to estrogen receptors, cause an issue for the oncologists who are giving chemotherapy, especially to patients who have estrogen receptor positive tumors? And so I'd like Alan to help answer that question. Thank you. So there was definitely some concern about the safety of giving these agents to women, particularly if they had estrogen um, sensitive disease. And one of the lessons they were worried about was there was some very old data in the time where women were given tamoxifen and chemo concurrently. And those women didn't have as good an outcome as women who got chemo and then tamoxifen sequentially. So the nice thing though about this particular fertility preservation option is it's the only one that's amenable to randomized controlled trials. You can't really do a randomized trial of ovarian tissue cryopreservation. It's just women would never go into a trial like that. But here women did, especially since we really didn't know whether it worked. And there, as Karen mentioned, there are multiple randomized trials and they all show not only that there is partial protection of the ovaries, but there is complete safety. And in fact, there are five trials that specifically included only breast cancer patients. And in the meta-analysis of these five trials, there's absolutely no hint of an increase in recurrence in either estrogen receptors um, positive or negative subgroups. And that's great. That's the, we can really have confidence in that data. So is it fair to say that these GNRH agonists act like a bomb shelter to help the ovaries shelter against the chemo and the bomb shelter doesn't have any kind of negative effect on the outcome of the cancer itself? Um, we can say that, except that it's not perfect to protect me against the bombs, right, Karen? Because there is still some damage to the ovaries. And yeah, these, the GNRH agonists um, protect about 15% of the damage, one five. 15%. So it's a little bit helpful, but it's not the be all and the end all. And I think especially recently when ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology came out with their recent guidelines of fertility preservation, they specifically said they don't want women to feel that taking a GnRH agonist prior to chemo is going to totally protect their fertility because it isn't. It's helpful, but it, it is much better in terms of talking about menopause than it is for fertility. Okay, so it's an umbrella. It's not a bomb shelter. <laughs> exactly. So we talked already a little bit about the impact of delaying treatments. Are there any other comments, Ellen, that you have about the fears women have around using hormones, having all these appointments, having these delays? Well, I think the only group where people get very nervous is these so-called triple negative breast cancers, which tend to be faster growing and people get nervous about delaying treatment. But I think the key is just, you know, to make that referral quickly for the oncologist to have close connections with fertility doctors like um, Karen, who, you know, will see their patients quickly. And I think, you know, unless you have a tumor that's so rapidly growing that the patient tells you that her lump, you know, appeared 
two weeks ago and now it's triple the size. There are some very rare cases where you might not be able to wait, but those are extremely rare. And in the vast majority of cases, I don't think delay is an issue. So Karen, I just want to ask, a lot of these recommendations would seem to apply to young female patients who are diagnosed with other cancers that aren't breast cancers. Is that fair to say? Yes, and I'm so glad you brought that up, Heather, because uh, this article is very specific, and there's many very specific issues with breast cancer that we have talked about. But any young person that's receiving chemotherapy is potentially at risk for their future fertility. So if a young woman has not completed their family and they're about to receive chemotherapy for any kind of cancer, um, and that could actually be a surgery that they're about to have or radiation that is in the pelvic area that they're about to have, then we are happy to see them and do a consultation in the fertility world and discuss the potential implications of their particular treatment in their particular situation. Um, and many of the options that we talked about today would be exactly the same options that I would offer young women with other kinds of cancer. And how accessible do you think these options are to patients who don't live in large urban centers across Canada? That's an excellent question, Heather. I think that COVID has helped us all become experts on virtual medicine. And fortunately, even before COVID, we've always been able to do a consultation via OTN or via phone um, to at least explain the fertility preservation options to patients. Also, some clinics work with what we call a satellite clinic. So it may be a much smaller clinic that's able to do an ultrasound to monitor how the eggs are growing or able to do the hormone levels and see how they're rising. So they can help us with what we call cycle monitoring to see how things are progressing in the IVF cycle. But um, you have to have a lab to put eggs or embryos in the freezer or ovarian tissue. So if you live in a remote location, some of the monitoring may be able to be done up in that remote location or in a satellite clinic, but they would always have to come eventually to a clinic that has a lab to have the retrievals. I believe that uh, one of my colleagues that works in British Columbia has actually an excellent setup because there are less clinics in the northern area of British Columbia as well. And so his patients do a lot of satellite monitoring, and then they just come for the very last day to have the retrieval. And so, yes, we do whatever we can at that crazy time in a person's life when they're young and they've been diagnosed with breast cancer and their whole life has been turned topsy-turvy. So we will try and help them to not have to come to the clinic itself and to be able to monitor in an outside facility that's closer to home. So Ellen, many women in, these, in this situation will worry about the impact of becoming pregnant after their cancer treatment is finished or having to stop hormone suppression therapy in order to have a pregnancy. Can you comment on those worries? Well, I think let's start with pregnancy because to be honest, if, um, if, we weren't, if we didn't think pregnancy was safe after breast cancer, then nobody would be terribly excited about doing fertility preservation. So when I was an oncology resident, and even in my early years in practice, we used to advise breast cancer patients to never ever get pregnant, especially if they had hormone sensitive disease, because it was assumed that those very high circulating estrogen and progesterone levels during pregnancy would stimulate dormant breast cancer cells and cancer would come back. But over time, there were increasing reports of women who did get pregnant. They didn't listen to their doctors. 
And all the reports suggested that if anything, these women actually had a lower than expected risk of breast cancer recurrence. And then there were obvious possible biases suggested to explain this observation, but eventually studies of a large enough number of women who did get pregnant after breast cancer were done. Um, there were proper matches, proper control groups to eliminate all the biases. And what they found was that pregnancy is completely safe. And even in these studies, if anything, there's a trend to the women who get pregnant having a better outcome and, and actually a lower relapse rate. But one might still worry about the hormone sensitive patients who decline or interrupt their hormonal therapy in order to get pregnant. Maybe they have a higher relapse rate than women who just take their recommended five or 10 years of hormone therapy continuously as recommended. But so far in all the studies we've looked at, which are all retrospective, there isn't any hint that that interruption causes any ill effects. And hopefully we're going to be able to, to answer that much more definitively in a prospective study called POSITIVE. It's a very important international study which just completed their accrual of 500 patients early this year. And what the study did is it took um, women with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer um, who are of reproductive age, had been taking their hormones for up to between a year and a half of two and a half years and allowed them to interrupt their hormonal therapy to get pregnant and then breastfeed if they wished. And they'll be compared to a comparable group of patients who don't get pregnant. Um, the other thing is some of these women are going to conceive naturally and some of them will conceive by assisted reproductive techniques that we've talked about. And it'll be very interesting to be able to compare the data on the safety of these assisted reproductive techniques because we don't have a whole lot of information on those patients yet. So what we do have is we have a, quite a bit of data showing that women who've had the ovarian tissue the, have, who've had the egg freezing or the embryo freezing, they seem to have the similar outcomes to patients who haven't done this. But we don't have a whole lot of patients who've actually used those eggs or embryos, and we'll have that information soon. But so far, there isn't a single hint of any of those patients having a worse outcome, and that's really, really reassuring. Is there anything that you think doctors and patients should know about fertility preservation for young patients with breast cancer that we haven't covered so far? So I would just like to say that simply by offering fertility preservation to a woman who has just been diagnosed with breast cancer, we're giving her such an extremely positive message. We're telling her that even though being diagnosed with breast cancer is terrifying, and even though her life will be disrupted for a good amount of time, that we expect that eventually she's going to be healthy and settled enough to have a family if she wants one, and that she'll live long enough to raise that family to adulthood. For me, I think having seen many of these patients post-chemotherapy and treatment of breast cancer and other cancers, um, often patients who did not receive a referral and didn't have the option of doing fertility preservation or at the time didn't think it was important to them and so they didn't proceed with fertility preservation, they come back and they have regrets. And so since we feel that it's completely safe to take those two weeks, um, I don't think patients will ever have regrets for doing IVF and then they never needed to use their eggs or their embryos. But certainly we see have patients many times who have had regrets who didn't proceed. And I think it's a really difficult, stressful thing to live your life if we think about the psychological impact of having, living your life with regrets. 
And so I think for patients, when I'm chatting with them, I always say to them, if you think you'll have regrets if you don't proceed, then you should proceed. And that obviously becomes complicated in provinces where there's a financial impact, but fortunately in Ontario, that impact is minimal. I think the other thing that we haven't mentioned too much of today that I just wanted to mention is um, the American Society of Clinical Oncology has come out with guidelines and they've updated it twice since they originally came out with it in, I believe it was 2006, um, to say that having a discussion with a patient about fertility preservation before chemotherapy is given is recommended. That is now the standard guideline. So um, that discussion can come from anybody. That can come from a nurse, that can come from a family doctor, a medical oncologist, a surgeon, a radiation oncologist. So anybody who's hearing this podcast and anybody who has patients in their practice that are young men and women um, with um, cancer that might affect their fertility should feel free to jump in and offer them a consultation so they can make choices about their future. So the more people that know about this, and the more people that recognize that it's something we need to do when patients are diagnosed with cancer, the better off everybody is going to be at the end. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I believe your paper also provides resources that patients and doctors can use. So there's a table at the end of the paper uh, that has a whole bunch of links for patient-friendly resources, for provider resources. And I think uh, that's the main message. Spread the word and get those patients referred. Thank you so much to both of you. I've learned so much about fertility preservation. And I think my take home message is any young woman who is diagnosed with cancer and is about to go any sort of treatment should have a conversation with their provider about fertility preservation. Thank you so much to Dr. Ellen Warner and Dr. Karen Glass. Thanks for joining me today. Our pleasure. Yes, thank you for having us. I've been speaking with Dr. Ellen Warner and Dr. Karen Glass. If you'd like to read their article on preserving fertility for younger patients with breast cancer, you can find it online at cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Heather Murray, Associate Editor for CMAJ, and thank you for listening.